Welcome to the Living Savior Sermon Webcast. We invite you to join us here for our worship service every Sunday at 10 a.m. Find out more at lsavior.org. Thank you for joining us today. Do you care what people think about you? I read several articles this past week written all by psychologists who were all saying the same thing, that you should care a whole lot less what people think about you. You you really shouldn't. There's just one problem. We still do. We still do. Even if you're kind of shaking your head and you're saying no, the proof is found in that some of the articles that I read were from the 80s and the 90s. And one was written just this last week. And I imagine that there's going to be more that are written too. Why? Because it happens. To whatever degree it is true for you and whatever kind of impact it has on you, you care about what people think about you. And largely that pertains to the people that are closest to you. You see, there's this relation that who a person is to you will determine a lot what they think about you. I will give you an example. About a year ago, I received an email from somebody I did not know personally. I know people who know this person, but I don't know this person personally. And this email was not exactly a cordial one. How much sleep did I lose over that email? None. Now, if I would have gotten an email like that, even that had a tone like that from one of you, if I would have gotten an email like that from one of my brothers in the ministry, close friends, guys who I trust immensely, if I would have gotten an email like that from my wife, granted it kind of would have been problematic if I got an email from my wife because she couldn't talk to me, that means I really would be in trouble. But you get the idea. The, The closer the person is to you, the more it matters to you what they think about you and say about you, who that person is. So do you think God really, really cares what everyone thinks about him? Do you think God cares about what you, you individually, specifically, personally, think about him? You might think that you're just a drop in the bucket and that you don't really matter, but you're his own dear child and you're made in his image, so he does. In fact, that's why he asks, what about you? What do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You see, Jesus wants us all to be on the same page of who he is, and it sounds so simple, but it is beyond profound that the God of heaven would want all of you, starting with you specifically, to know who he is. Because when you're on that same page, that impacts your life and your view of eternity. And it is precisely so that we would be on that same page that we would take another look at this gospel lesson that I just read to you earlier from Matthew chapter 16. I invite you to have that open in your Bibles or in your worship folders. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. As you're opening up to that, it's helpful to know where Jesus and the disciples are. Once again, as we saw last week, Jesus pulls the disciples aside so that he and they and we, as a result, would all be on the same page. Page. They are in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi was at that time also called Caesarea Peneus, dedicated, of course, to the Greek god Pan, the god of destruction and desolation. Apparently, there's a god for that kind of thing. In addition, Herod had erected a temple as a tribute to Philip the Tetrarch and Caesar, and Caesarea Philippi. Caesar Augustus, of course, among the other Roman emperors of that time viewed himself as 
divine. So how fitting, as they are surrounded by all these different types of gods, that Jesus, who also makes that same claim, would get the disciples and us on the same page of who he really is. And so he asks them, who do people say that I am? And what were some of the responses? Well, some say John the Baptist. Uh, remember John the Baptist, not that long before our lesson, was beheaded for calling out Herod, who was living in, in an adulterous relationship. So some, not many, thought that maybe this is John the Baptist come back from the dead to exact revenge. Oh no! Others say Elijah. Remember Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. So maybe Jesus, this powerful miracle worker of the present, as they all saw, is really just Elijah come back. Elijah, the powerful miracle worker of the Old Testament. And still others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. If you recall, Jeremiah and the, the prophets were strong opponents to fraudulent Israel in the Old Testament. Remember? They would call out fraudulent religious leaders. They would go toe-to-toe with these people and even proclaim the destruction of Israel, which ended up happening through the nation of Babylon. Jesus has gone toe-to-toe with religious leaders and Pharisees. Maybe this is Jeremiah come back from the dead or one of the others. And all of those are pretty complimentary. I mean, think about it. Those are some pretty popular people. Imagine if someone would say something about you similar to this. You have the faith of Abraham or the boldness of Paul, the hospitality of Lydia or the humility of Mary Magdalene. You'd walk away with some, with some boost in your self-esteem. But while these would be complimentary to just about anyone else, Jesus is not just anyone else. These are below him. But this misunderstanding of who Jesus is isn't just for that time. It still exists today. What do people, who do people say that Jesus is today? Who do people say that he is? That he's some preacher, teacher, some spiritual leader, some moral guide or guru, the subject of some kind of fable. And if you would think those kinds of things, you would get along with virtually everyone, most everyone. A billion Muslims would agree with you if you would say that Jesus is a prophet, just as some people said back then. But you say he's divine? Oh, no, no, no. Millions of unbelieving Jews and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and many more would agree with you if you would say that Jesus was a powerful teacher and he was like no one else and he was an incredible guy and he was almost God but not quite. But the moment you say he's the son of God, oh no, no, no. Even outside of that world religion umbrella, when you get among the skeptics and atheists and agnostics, you can say that Jesus is a historical figure, a pillar in that point in time who had an impact on that region. But the moment you say that he's just more than a good guy, but that he's God, oh no, 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 no. You can't say that. But you know what? Regardless of what everyone in our world might like to have to say about who Jesus is, it doesn't change the truth. Regardless of whoever it is in your life that might try to sway you away from this idea of who Jesus really is, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the truth. So how can I make this truth claim in a world and in a culture which hates absolute truth claims? Um, Jesus rose from the dead. 
Jesus rose from the dead. So if he said he was going to rise, and he did, and there's no evidence to the contrary, that's stable at least, then he rose from the dead. And so we can say that this is the truth regardless of what anyone says. But Jesus wasn't just asking this question because he kind of wanted to know what people thought about him. Although, that's true relatively speaking. He asked this question as a setup to the following. Okay, disciples, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Because clearly he wants to know. And what did Peter have to say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that should have been really easy for, G- for Peter and the disciples. Consider the things that they had seen and heard. They had seen Jesus turn water into wine, and they had heard the Father bellow down from heaven at Jesus' baptism. They had seen Jesus walk over the object of their fears, the storm, the winds, and the waves. And they had heard Jesus rebuke the storm and watch creation listen to its maker. They had... <clears throat> seen Jesus heal and cure, and they had heard him gather crowds. They had even heard what other people had to say, like the Canaanite woman, the so-called outsider from last week, right, who proclaimed him as the Lord, the son of David, who, whom she asked for mercy, from whom she asked mercy. And of course, he gave it and healed her daughter who was demon-possessed. So clearly, based on what they had seen and heard, this is easy. And Peter says, as Peter's known to do, he jumped in and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and boy, was he right. And based on all the things that you and I have seen and heard in our life, this should be really easy for you and me too, right? Especially when we are gathered in the face of a bunch of our disciples, right? Kind of like Peter and the rest of the disciples, This is a very easy place and an easy crowd where we can say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But then all of a sudden, when we are surrounded by people who have something different to say, we somehow have nothing to say at all on the matter. When we retreat to our own Caesarea Philippi, that is, that comfortable, safe space where we, among like-minded individuals, can confess our faith, it's really easy to say, with Peter and the others, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's really easy. And then the critics and the pundits speak up and have something quite different to say, quite to the contrary, and we suddenly shut our mouths. After all, we wouldn't want to offend anyone. Right in front of Jesus' face, it's really easy for Peter and the disciples with him right right there to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And here in this place or when you are in God's word because he promises that he's in your face at that point in time too through his word, it's really easy to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But then throughout the week, we somehow grow distant and when he's not there, we might not say it as clearly or loudly or at all. Friends, the danger is not just that there are people that are trying to silence your confession of Christ. The danger is that we easily grow distant and we ourselves start to build a different type of foundation that enables us to do it in the first place. If Jesus Christ really is who he says he is, though, then this is something that you cannot be moderately interested in. Because if he really is who he says he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then that kind of changes things, doesn't it? But you know what? Jesus didn't affirm Peter's confession because of who Peter is. Jesus affirmed Peter's confession precisely because of who Peter wasn't. 
I'm going to say that again. Jesus did not affirm Peter's confession because of who Peter was. Jesus affirmed Peter's confession precisely because of who he wasn't. Precisely because of who you and I aren't either. Think of what he said. He said, you're the Christ. That is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one set apart by God to fulfill all of God's promises, distinguished and established as the one who would seek you out and rescue you, who would stand in the way of our sin and the wrath of God towards us because of our sin. He is the son of the living God. That is, he is the one who would live and die as every man would and will, but he is also God. He would live perfectly, die as the all-sufficient sacrifice, and rise back to life as only God could. This Son of God would look at every single time you and I have been intimidated by others, every time we've been bashful about our confession in Christ, every time we should be standing upon this rock-solid truth, but we kind of lean or sway or step aside, every single time we have let fear or worry move us away from what should be the bedrock of our faith, because it is... And he took every last one of those sins and put it on himself as only the Son of God could. And there, Jesus died on the cross, and so did all your sin. The Son of God died on the cross, and so did all of your sin. A God-sized sacrifice, so you would know that no matter how big your blunders, it's been paid for in full, forever, for all. Think about what this means for you. This is where you and I stand on this immovable foundation that the son of the living God who came to do everything that God said he would do did and then he rose from the dead just to obviously put the giant stamp of God's approval on all of it so that you stand forgiven. And everything that Jesus is, everything that we think about him correctly changes not just what we think about him but it also changes who we are. Who, what you think about Jesus, who you think he is, changes who you are. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Well, he's the Redeemer. That means you stand forgiven. You're bought back. He's the Savior. That means you're saved. He's the sacrifice. That means you're loved. He is God's gift. That means you get grace. He rose from the dead. That means you are and always will be alive. Whoever lives and remains in me will never die, Jesus says. That's what you get, and that's the foundation on which we stand. And incidentally, this just so happens to be the foundation not on just what you stand as one member of a church, but on what his entire church stands upon. Because that's exactly what he said to Peter next, right? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. You didn't somehow conjure up this understanding. You didn't decide to follow this truth. This isn't something that you can just convince yourself of. No, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit unless God gives it. And that's what Jesus says. This was revealed to you by your Father in heaven. And guess what? This has a profound impact not just on you, Peter, but on everyone around you. It says, because I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. See, what you think about Jesus is not just for you. What you think about Jesus changes who you are, and it also must have an impact on everyone around you. Take a closer look at what Jesus says. I tell you that you are Peter. The, the Greek word there is Petrus. That's significant because Petrus means rock but it's a rock that you can hold in your hand. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, Petrus, 
And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petra is different. It sounds similar, but it's different. It's a rock, but it's like the bedrock or the foundation on which you stand. So think about what he's saying. Is he saying he's going to build his church on Peter? Because Peter's an immovable foundation? This is the guy who just two chapters earlier was sinking, right? This is the guy who would say, if all others fall away, I won't. And then he did. Remember that, Peter? So clearly he's not the one, nor is any person the one on whom God's church would stand. No, what God is saying, I tell you that you are Peter, Petrus, like a rock you can hold in your hand, and on this Petra, a foundation on which you stand, I will build my church. So what is that foundation? It's the very thing that Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that not what changes eternity for souls, for you, for those around you? I mean, because what's the alternative? You can, you can stand on the shaky footing that this life is all that we really have to hope for, and where does that get you when, I don't know, a hurricane can come and wash it all away, literally? Or a fire like the one that's burned over a half million acres in Montana can just take your life and burn it all up in smoke, literally. Or there's pestilence and disease. Loved ones who are dying, guilt and shame and fear competition that leaves us with stress and anxiety. Is this really all that you have to hope for in this life? There must be something else on which we would stand, something that instead of fear and calamity and tragedy and worry and stress and death, something that would be eternal and forgiving and gracious and loving and peaceful. And it just so happens that that's the foundation that cannot fall. That Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if this is what changes you, then it must also change everyone around you. But that's kind of tough, isn't it? Think of this story. There's a gentleman by the name of Ford Layton who was in Halifax, Nova Scotia with Billy Graham, and they were preaching and proclaiming the gospel to people. Ford was up first, and he's presenting the gospel And Billy Graham, who was very famous by this time, was hiding in the back with sunglasses and a ball cap. And this man was encouraging people to confess their faith. And Billy Graham was in the back, and he sees this older gentleman, and he goes over and kind of elbows him and says, you confess your faith in Jesus? And the man said, oh, no. I'm waiting for the big gun. Billy Graham was up the next day. I'm waiting for the big gun before I do that. That's tomorrow. Little did he know, he was talking to the big gun. So often, whether we're confessing our faith or waiting for someone to help encourage us in our faith, we, we, we wait and we kind of leave this for the big guns, right? Guys like professional evangelists or celebrities spiritually or pastors, right? They're the ones who really need to share the gospel. I don't see Jesus make that distinction incidentally, and ironically, Jesus never even points out pastors and evangelists as the best ones to confess their faith. Who are the best ones, that Jesus says? Oh, it's like the Canaanite woman who seemed to be an outsider. Jesus says, you have great faith. It's the little child who, to whom Jesus points and says, you should have faith like, like one of these. It's the person who is off to the side, the person who seems to be overlooked, the average Christian who is the best person to give a witness for their faith. It's the person who is dying or you who have lost a loved one. 
It's the person struggling with hospital bills and visits or the person who knows family members that are. It's the person who knows that God's grace has moved them so immensely, and that's not just me. It's the people in front of me. And God says that this is the very truth that is overcoming the gates of Hades. It is storming the walls built by Satan to take souls away from their Father in heaven. And he has given this charge to you. It's the foundation on which you stand and it can't fall and it just so happens to be the banner that you are flying to. The one that changed you and the one that changes those around you. So there's absolutely nothing to fear. You simply have to answer the question to the world around you. Who do people say that Jesus is? Whatever. What about you? What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And since you know the answer to that question, you can simply stand, say it because it's an immovable foundation on which you stand. May God grant that to you all. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our sermon webcast. I'm Pastor Caleb Kerbis. To discuss today's sermon or to discover more about our ministry, visit our website at lsavior.org. Thank you again for joining us and may God bless your day.